Welcome to the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast, part of the Thrive Podcast family. This is a place to focus on helping pastors and leaders discover or rediscover their purpose, passion, and vision. Ray Johnston is the founding pastor of the Bayside Family of Churches. He's the architect of all the Global Thrive Conferences. He is also an award-winning author and a widely sought-after speaker, mentor, and leadership authority. Each episode of the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast is a conversation between Ray and his hand-picked, world-renowned guests as they share timeless principles, timely insight, and new ideas on how to grow as a leader wherever you're planted. Today's guest is Dr. Henry Cloud, award-winning author of many books on spiritual, emotional, relational, and organizational health, including the best-selling Boundaries series. So let's get right into this episode of the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast. I want to welcome Dr. Henry Cloud to the podcast. We are glad you're here, my friend. It's good to be with you. And here's what I want to say is if you're the one person out of thousands listening to this that are going, who's Henry Cloud? He has a bio unlike anybody I know. Uh, he has 20 million books in print, works with companies, and at this point, about 117 of them. Somebody estimates he's actually helped about 150 million people. He's a leadership expert, a clinical psychologist, which is a dynamite combination, New York Times bestselling author of 45 different books, uh, including Boundaries, which has helped more people than almost any book I know, um, and helped them get freed up. Uh, He does a lot of executive coaching, and we are really glad you're here. I'm getting tired just reading all the stuff you make it happen. So... Welcome. We're glad you're here. And I'm going to dive right into this because everybody listening to this is leading something, a family, a company. I was on the phone with the CEO this morning who was going to be on this. And the first thing I want to say is this, um, Dr. Cloud, our culture, it just seems like it's crazy on every level. And could you just take a minute and you work with business, but you're also psychologists, reflect what you see is happening right now with relationships, emotional health, including people going crazy in church. Oh, wow. Where do we start? Um, I think that um, <clears throat> one of the biggest biggest paradigm problems we have here is that there's sort of like a dynamic perpetual divisiveness. You know, division works usually in triads. You know, somebody somebody feels something, right, has experienced something and have been hurt by it. And then somebody over here is the herter. And then there's a third party that that is the rescuer of that. You see this in church splits, you see it in families, you see it in, in communities and all of that. And 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 there's this this food for just always food for fodder and something is going and somebody's gonna kind of continue to fuel that. What we don't have in the midst of this is some way of getting, it's really a leadership thing, of getting above it to be able to truly listen. I think the biggest breakdown that we, one of the biggest breakdowns we have right now is listening. And and one of the great things I think that has happened in all of this is um, that a lot of people that have been hurt are finally being listened to. And I think if we can continue down that path, because until somebody's been been understood, you know, we can't get anywhere. And so I think I think the listening is if we can create contexts and we can and the listening even breaks down in a lot of individual conversations because as soon as somebody says something, then somebody doesn't want to listen. They want to go attack that, you know, from, from whatever side. And we just need to listen and understand. I, in, in my book, Integrity, um, I defined, um, you know, trust really is the bedrock of trust is when we truly feel like, you know, we're understood. We, we can't, trust somebody if we don't feel like they understand where I'm coming from and they understand my needs and, and all of that. And he, here's the big problem. And, and this kind of gets to the essence of what you're saying that we're asking. And that is that, that we don't understand somebody when we understand them. 
We understand somebody when they understand that we understand. And that's when the listening loop has really been closed. And right now, you've got, you know, a lot of moments where, where even in good intentions, people think, well, I understand, but it's not a connected understanding where the other person, you've, you've made it such that they really are nodding and feeling like, you get it, you get it, you finally get it. And when we get the, the nod of, okay, I finally feel like they understand, then divisiveness gets decreased. And that's a really hard, hard thing to pull off, and especially in today's fragmented environment. And people would be divisive, you know, in 149 characters, right? Yeah, no kidding. Is there a recommended first step? Say somebody's going, you know what, I don't really know a whole lot of people that, that you know, don't look and think like me. Is there something where you'd say, you know, you, you, know, you can't jump to the top of the ladder, you got to climb it. What would be step one? Well, it's a good thing you're acknowledging it. Hmm. You know, to that person, I would say that. I'd say, um, because a lot of people, and, you know, a lot of times a fish doesn't, doesn't know they're wet, you know. I, they never even think about that I have surrounded myself with people that think and feel and experience and do life like me. And a lot of times they, they don't even do that. And I think you'll see that, you know, whether it's political, it's faith, it's, you know, a lot of stuff. And that's not the face of Jesus, you know, the, to just surround oneself with, with people that think and feel and, and do like I do. And then, throw rocks at the other side. I mean, even in the church, you know, you got the, you got the Bible logs on one hand, throwing rocks at the, at the charismaniacs, they call them. And then you got the, you know, all the different divisions, but how many do they actually know and love and get close to and find out how much, how much they actually do love God, how much they actually serve and walk with him and how, and you get close to seeing somebody's heart just stop, stop throwing these rocks and it's just amazing how we as humans operate from the assumptions and the stories we're telling ourselves about somebody else without getting close to them so so i'd say to somebody you've got to get out of your familiar zones and what i would do is i would i would humbly reach out for a guide from whatever the other side is and go and say, I want to learn, you know, I need some help here. There's a lot about your experience in life or the way that you look at, at God or the way you look at the Bible or the way you look at, you know, the political spectrum or whatever it is that, that I humbly, you have to say to them, I just don't know. I'm ignorant. Ignorance is not bad. It just means without knowledge. And so, will you be my guide? Take me into the neighborhoods where I need to go. Take me into the meetings and the settings I need to go. And then intentionally go start reading and listening to. And, but but we gotta, it's got to be done in the flesh, I think. The, the incarnational side of this is so important. It's easy, you know, it's easy to devalue, discredit, gaslight, you know, devalue and, and a concept or a written word. It's harder. It's harder to do that with a human. And I think we need to get close. By the way, I'm I'm not a sociologist, so there's there's going to be a lot of holes in probably what I've just said. But I do know I do know this that where I spend so much of my time is is trying to reconcile divisions mm-hmm. in in teams and boards and CEOs and you know the home office and the field and you know you wherever you get these divisions and I, I, I can promise you, you know, step one is proximity and listening. Boy, that is good. It seems like relational conflict is on the rise at almost astronomical levels. I mean, we, we have, we have a whole, every pastor listening to this, everybody leading anything is going, I had a whole bunch of people that for the last several years seemed relatively normal. And now they're at deaf content. Why is it the sort of people that seem nice and responsible are having such sick, they've turned into attack dogs. What, what's going on? 
If I had to point to one thing, I would point to the breakdown in experienced structures. You know, if we, if you just think of, um, you know, th- think of kids, right? If you, if there's no structure in a classroom or a family or, or kind of whatever, we, our brains need maps in order to be able to, to kind of negotiate the day and negotiate life. We, we build these maps and here's what's expected of me. Here's how I behave. Here's the norms, all of that kind of stuff. And what that does is you take a little snow globe, you know, it's sitting securely and all the snow is fine. You know, it's a pretty scene. Well, you mix that up and you get rid of so many structures that calm us down. You know, you, when, when a chaotic classroom is crazy because the substitute teacher and then the principal walks in, all of a sudden everybody's in their seats because now some structure is, is sort of entered. There are belief systems, there's paradigms, there's routines, there's alignments. All of those provide a sense of structure. That's what God's ways are supposed to do for us, right? In Deuteronomy 6, he says, I've given you these ways so that you may walk in them. Well, if we have ways and expectations, we can walk in them and kind of calm down. I was on a call earlier this morning, and somebody who's very loving, um, very, uh, very attuned, I mean, in the, in the best of ways to, to so many sort of different areas where there's a lot of hurt right now. This guy is one of the most sensitive sensitive advocates for justice and for every group. And he said something and got some hate mail immediately. And he said, I didn't know the rules had changed. I didn't get the memo that you couldn't say that phrase anymore. And it was a phrase, I can't even remember. It doesn't matter what it was. It was a new one. I never had even heard it. But see, all of the norms are moved. There's moving targets. And I think that makes everybody kind of freaked out. Even a lot of times, you know, I don't want to do anything hurtful, but they did. And they didn't even know they did because they didn't know what had changed. I have been having conversations with almost everybody about you. You basically, a few weeks ago, I listened to you saying, there are three kinds of people, sort of, you take the book of Proverbs, sort of, people, you experience people in three ways. Can you unpack that? Well, there's a group that's right. Those are the ones that agree with Ray, right? <laughs> no good. That's a small group. <laughs> You're probably referring to the wise, fool, and evil paradigm. Right? Um, so where that came from is if you, if you think anybody that's ever studied human behavior, Broadly speaking, you know, psychiatry has done this for years. Psychology has done this. And you begin to study character structures, which are, are kind of how people are glued together. Now, we're, we're not talking about good or bad or right or wrong or ethical or moral. We're talking about characterological, you know, a character in a play. There's different kind of characters, sort of how we're glued together. Broadly speaking, <clears throat> you're going to see these three groups, and you can almost say of people, let's just, instead of labeling people, let's call them behaviors, but three patterns of behaviors. And the book of Proverbs, um, because I come at this as a practitioner and a psychologist, and and I believe that the scriptures, what's the best way to say say this? I don't think you're, you're gonna find, you're not gonna find anything that's true in psychiatry or psychology that, the scriptures have not described, you know, it, it just always, the, the research always validates what's there. Well, one of the things that you see in leadership, especially, and in other places in life, is that, and here's a common problem. I always tell, tell leaders this, if you are nice and responsible, if you're loving and responsible person, I guarantee you, you have a problem. And here's the problem. You think everybody is like you, (laughs) meaning, right? You're loving. You want to treat people well. 
you're responsible, you own your part in things and you do your job. And so then you come across somebody and let's say they're, they're not performing in some way. They're not showing up. They're not delivering. They're not taking care of what they need to take care of, or they're, they're out of control in some way, or they step on your toes and they hurt you. Well, as a nice, responsible person, what if you did so? If you were laid on something or didn't perform or weren't doing your job or stepped on somebody's toes, what would work with you? Well, what would work is somebody would give you a little feedback and say, you know, Ray, when you said that in that meeting, that didn't feel so good. Could you say it in a different way? Or, Ray, you know, when you we were waiting on that uh, budget that you were going to get us, and, and when you get it late, it really causes a lot of problems down the line. Could you make sure? Okay. So that's what would work with you. And then what would you do? You'd go, oh, my gosh, sorry, I didn't mean to step on your foot. I'll be more careful, whatever. And that's what works with you. So here's what you do. You run into people that are performing and you give them feedback, right? And some of them are like you and they go, gee, right? Thanks for telling me. I'll do better. And they improve. That's how we get better. Okay. The Bible calls that group of people wise people. It's not how big their IQ is or their brain or their experience. A wise person is basically someone, when the light comes to them, when the truth comes to them, they adjust themselves to match the truth. That's good. You give me feedback, I receive it, <clears throat> and then I adjust my behavior to meet the standard. All right? Proverbs. Correct a wise person, they'll become wiser still. So you give them feedback. Correct a wise person, what does it say? They will love you. Oh, thank you for telling me that. I didn't know I was coming across that way. Thank you. They're grateful for it. There's, it deepens their relationship. And best of all, they own it and they change. All right? Well, you assume everybody's going to be like that, so you give them feedback. Well, then all of a sudden you run into somebody on your team or an elder or an employee or somebody in your extended family or whoever, and you say, you know, I, I got to share something. When you did A, B, or C, this caused a problem. Well, they don't thank you for it. <laughs> They're not grateful for it. They don't change their behavior. They don't own it. They do exactly the opposite. They disown it. They shoot the messenger. Well, that's because if you had given me more responsibility or if you had or the marketing department or, well, that's because so-and-so, well, it's not my fault. It's always externalized. It's not owned. So it's blaming, excusing. They're in denial about it. They externalize the problem. And the basic thing is when you're trying to talk to somebody like this, the problem is never in the room. It's always out there somewhere or it's you. So remember, what does Proverbs say? Do not confront a fool or a mocker, somebody that mocks the truth, doesn't join the truth, they mock the truth. Do not even give them feedback, lest you incur insults upon yourself. It doesn't work. So it says, don't even try it. <laughs> and it says this, confront, you know, confront a wise person, they love you for it. Confront a fool, it says, do not confront a fool or a mocker, they will hate you for it. So basically, what I said, you got a problem, right? Because what do nice people do? They keep trying to fix this person by coaching them and giving them grace and, and you know, trying to, you know, maybe I said it in a different way. Gosh, if I could, you know, maybe if I, maybe if I promoted them, maybe if I gave them a little more. And somehow you think their lack of ownership is somehow your problem because that's what they've done. They've lateraled the problem over the fence. They're not owning anything. So they never change. So, so what happens is wise leaders really get upside down with these people because they don't do what research and the scriptures tell us. You talk to a wise person. Why? Because talking helps. Mm -hmm. You don't continue to talk to a fool or a mocker or somebody with foolish behavior, I should say, or a mocker. Why? It doesn't help. 
They'll insult you. They'll make you the problem. They'll blame you. Worse than that, they'll maybe divisive and go down the hall and complain about you to somebody else. And now we got a division or a church split because they don't own their side of things. So what do you do? Well, you don't keep talking to them about the problem. You change the conversation. You go from talking helps with wise people. What helps with mockers or fools is limits and consequences. See, you can't change their behavior, but what you can do is limit your exposure to the problem. So what you say to them instead of, you know, talking about the problem, you say, Joe, you know how I've talked about the deadlines and I've talked about this, that, and the other. I don't want to talk about that anymore. So I'm not going to bring those problems up with you for a while or anymore, at least now. But I I want to talk about a different problem. Here's a problem we need to talk to you about. I need to talk to you about the problem is when I talk to you about a problem, it doesn't help. So I need some way to tell you how I need for you to be different, that you will hear it and change, or I need to just limit my exposure to this problem. That's not getting fixed. So I might have to take you off the project. You know, I might, maybe you have to go work somewhere else. Maybe I got to take your responsibilities and give them to somebody else. What I can't do, I can't expose me and the team to missing another big product launch or missing another big attendance at our conference because you didn't. I've got to limit our exposure to this behavior. Okay, so that's what I'm going to have to do. Now, if you want to make it different, then you can Okay, so, so we go to limits and consequences. And then there's a third group. You know, a fool basically isn't trying to hurt anybody. They're just trying to avoid responsibility, but they do hurt people. You know, an addict, for example, falls in that category. They're not trying to wreck their family. They're just trying to avoid responsibility, but they wreck their family, right? Yeah. It's collateral damage. There's a third category that the Bible refers to as evil, they have destruction in their hearts. So they're really out to hurt you. And so with wise people, we talk to them, right? Fools, mockers, we don't talk about problems. We talk about consequences and we enforce those. With evil people, you don't talk at all. You go into what I call the Warren Zavon method. Remember Warren Zavon? Do you remember him? Werewolves of London, all those great songs. And we had this one, one song called Lawyers, Guns, and Money. (laughs) That's how you deal with evil people. Lawyers, Guns, and Money. What do I mean by that? I'm not going to discuss this with you. I'll only speak to you through my attorney because they're coming after you, okay? You have to go into protection mode. So you use the law to protect yourself because somebody's trying to bring you down. They're literally trying to destroy you or your organization, your business, or your church. Guns, what do I mean by that? I've been in situations where we had to call the police. You have to call security because somebody's out to get somebody. You got to call the law or money. You might have to spend a lot of money to defeat this thing and put resources towards it. So I hope you guys don't deal with that category very often, but I guarantee you, you'll deal We'll deal with the other two. And I wrote about this in, in Necessary Endings pretty extensively. But it's a, you know, when people kind of get it and you go through the scriptures, once you begin to see it, you go, oh, my gosh, why didn't I see this? Go to, I mean, Paul's so clear, reject a divisive person after a second warning. I can't tell you how many organizations I've gone into. The teams are in turmoil and all this divisive, you know, clicks. And I do all the interviews. I come back to the CEO or the, you know, the head person. And I go, this is pretty simple. You got one person that's causing all of this. Mm-hmm. And then they'll try to fix it. doesn't work. After a second, then they finally get rid of them. Within a month, that team that hated each other is sitting around the table going, now, why was I mad at you? They were being divided. 
It's a classic strategy. Hmm. And leaders need to get it that you're not going to fix a divisive person. And triangulation and divisive behavior has no place on a well-functioning team, family, organization, or whatever. And, and you have to you just have to protect yourself against it. Triangulation. Triangulation and divisiveness has no place in any functional team, organization, family, relationship, anything. One of the only times you see God afraid in the Bible, I mean, how many, if you think, when was God afraid? Well, I know there's problems with this statement. Don't, don't email me. But <laughs> he looked at these humans and he goes, oh my gosh, they're trying to earn their way to heaven. They're building a tower all the way to heaven. I'm sure he didn't sound exactly like this, but <laughs> we better do something or they, and he said this, if they are united, they can do anything they want. Unity is the most powerful dynamic that exists. And he stopped it because he didn't want the power of that unity going in a direction he didn't want it in. Okay, roll the clock forward to John 17. What does he say? He didn't pray for finances. He didn't pray for strategy. He didn't pray for a bunch of other stuff. He's got 12 morons that he's going to send out there I say that with all due affection. He's got 12, 12 people that need to be developed, right? He's going to send them out there to conquer the world. He prays for one thing, their unity, because that was the most powerful force available. And he said, Father, make them one like we are. And so when you've got any kind of team dynamics, you know, a cancer cell is a cell that disengages and develops a life of its own apart from the life-giving cells. And when you've got division, you know, somebody's got a problem with you, Ray, and they don't talk to you, they triangulate it, and they go have the meeting after the meeting. Well, I don't think it, you know, rah, 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 rah. and so now you've got these coalitions, and now you've got divisiveness and I remember somewhere in a word study one time, I, I, I found out that, um, that, that actually somewhere in the Latin or some derivative etymology of, but, but the word diabolic actually means to compartmentalize. Hmm. And you think about it, that's what people do. They divide, compartmentalize a team and then all sorts of diabolical stuff because people aren't talking to each other. We're back to proximity. Yep. Important for leaders to learn. Let me back up and ask two questions, unpacking the implications of wise and foolish. If I'm hearing this right, you're saying, boy, wise people get feedback. They welcome it, adjust to it, are probably grateful for it, and because of that, they grow. Foolish people basically reject feedback and attack. In other words, you try to give feedback to a foolish person, and they go into attack mode instead of reception mode. Is that what you're saying? And sometimes it's, it's not always attack of the person, but it will be attack on the truth. Yeah. So, for example, you give me feedback, I will adjust that feedback so it fits my scenario in some way. Okay? So I'm going to say, well, that's because you didn't do this right, or that's because, you know, they didn't blah, 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 blah. And I often say it this way. An immature person asks life to meet their demands. A mature person meets the demands of life. Hmm. Okay? So every day, reality is going to show up and truth is going to show up in our lives. And we have, we're either going to meet the demand that that truth is calling us to meet or adjust to. Or we're going to try to adjust the truth. I mean, don't we see that everywhere in the universe where I don't want to change. I don't want to bend my knee to that reality. Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to, well, they didn't know what they were talking about. Or I'm going to discredit the, you know, the research or whatever it is. So, but sometimes it's attack on the person, but it's always going to be attack on the truth somehow. Yep. My second follow-up question to Wise is, 
I feel like there may be, out of the thousands of people listening, there may be two of them that are like me where I'm going, I wish I were permanently wise. However, I feel like I bounce back and forth between, oh man, why do I, I feel like part of the time I'm foolish and part of the time I'm wise. How do I? Well, you just you just self-qualified as wiser than the people that don't realize that. But go ahead. <laughs> well, my wife's right on this. She just told me. You know, she said, "Honey, you need to ask this question." And she would also want me to ask this for folks out there going, "Man, I'd like to move the needle towards wisdom in my own life." Yeah. What you tell us three or four things, but but the first thing that came to mind, wisdom has to do. In some senses, there's only one way to get wisdom, and that's through experience. Now, here's where we get the choice. How am I going to get the experience? Well, there's a couple ways. One is I can not listen to feedback and go do it in my own stupid way, reject the wise people's voices that are in my life and say, I know better and then go fall on my face. And I will have gained the experience of, Oh crap, I was wrong, but I learned my lesson, but it hurt. Or we can seek the experience of others and take that and internalize it. Okay. So, so basically if somebody tells me this is the way you fly a plane, well, I can listen to the instruction as the first several chapters of Proverbs tells us, my son, if you will listen to this, you know, it's going to go a lot better than if you don't. Or you can follow the adulteress just straight to your own hell, and then you'll, then you'll get it, right? So the first thing is we've really got to be, and, you know, Proverbs is clear about this. It says go and buy wisdom. Sell everything you have and go and buy it. It's so interesting. And I work with a lot of extreme high performers. Yeah. And it's amazing to me, Ray. I see these, these, these people that run these global entities, you know, like gazillions of billions, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees. The complexity is insane. And I look at them and I'm going, like there's some of them, I literally can't look away when I talk to them because they're processing so fast. If I missed a syllable, I'm going to be four days behind. They're, they're so brilliant. The highest performers in my coaching clients, they're the ones that call me the most. i give you an example. I, I, one that is, is uh, CEO of, of well, I won't name the industry because it would be recognizable, but call me Friday afternoon. He says, yeah, I've got this thing going on with the board and I'm about to send an email to the chairman and copy everybody, but I've worked on it all day and I want, I just want to run it past you. Okay. Yeah. I said, send it to me. I read the email. I call him back. I said, dude, shut down your computer. Okay. Go fishing for the weekend and call me Monday. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, just please, just do it. He goes, okay. I said, whatever you do, don't send that. So he, call, he calls me Monday morning. And he says, uh, I, read, I read the email. I don't know what I was feeling. I think I wrote that. I said, exactly. Okay, so, but here's somebody that I just go, I mean, this is like Tiger Woods of his industry, but they're always like they have their advisors around them and they're always seeking and they're asking because we have blind spots, mm-hmm. right? And so I, make sure you're proactive about getting the people around you that can speak into what you're doing is another huge part of this. And as Proverbs says, do everything you can to find this wisdom. Yep. Remember this, everybody. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. If you're the smartest person in your circle of friends, you've got to get some new friends. 
You know, if you're the most mature person in your circle of friends, you got to get some new friends. And I don't mean throw everybody out. What I mean is if we're not subjecting ourselves to further along than we are in some area or at least another set of eyeballs, then we are screwed. And I know a lot of, you get in the church world, there are so many train wrecks where some really smart, talented person starts a ministry and because they're so gifted and talented early on, they find a handful of people that are really good-hearted people and support them and, and they make them their board because they're in it and they want to help. And this is all good, except those board members are serving at the pleasure of the senior pastor, which is totally upside down, totally upside down, because that makes him or her king of the world. Yep. And until that's flipped and they get some people around the table that don't think everything they say say is right and perfect in this and the other – they are headed for a disaster because there is no entity in this universe where one person sits above it all and is in charge. But I tell you what, we got a lot of them operating that way. And when I go into a problematic board situation, one of the first things I'll do, and I won't tell them ahead of time, I'll hand out three by five cards. And I'll say to the board and the CEO, I have a question. Does the CEO or the senior pastor or senior, do they serve at the pleasure of the board or does the board serve at the pleasure of the senior pastor? And I want you to write down your answer and hang on. And then I read them and I say, okay, so we got a problem, don't we? Y'all don't know who works for whom here. That is good. That, that leads into another question. Um, I want to ask sort of rapid fire leadership questions. One is this, for people listening to this, some folks are going to go, I have to confront somebody or I already have, and now I'm under attack, and I'm getting killed online or whatever it is. And I would like to feel better, respond better. Almost every pastor I know right now is more discouraged than they were five months ago, and a lot of it has to do with personal attacks. And what kind of personal attacks in this context are you referring to? Did they because the numbers aren't back up, because the virus is not gone, because um, it, what did they do? I think the root of it is, and, and these folks will blow up the chest ring, everybody's playing lose-lose, okay? Like if, if a pastor gets up and says, hey, we're, we're gathering, then they get applause and they get criticized, okay? Right. If a pastor says, um, hey, please wear a mask when you come to church. Got it, okay. And slaughter them, but if they say they're optional, Democrats kill them. I mean, at least in California. So it's crazy out there. And most pastors and probably most leaders are under levels of attack from people that are spending 14 hours a day online instead of living. It means now they're spiraling downward emotionally. Yeah. Quick answer. I would start with a combination of naming the problem A and B, empathizing. Okay. Name the problem A and B, empathize and come at it humbly. And so it's going to sound something like this, whatever the issue is. You know, we're in a tough situation right here, guys. And there's kind of two sides to every decision we make, and people have really strong feelings about this. And usually, a lot of times, when there's really strong feelings about things, there's really strong feelings because it's really... There are good reasons for what both of you are saying. And that's just true. And so I'm going to tell you guys that um, the ones of you who want to really play it safe, right? So let's make sure nobody gets exposed. What a great thing to want. (laughs) Yeah. And the ones of you that are wanting to help people in their isolation – and their struggle and make it able so they can get with people. What a great thing you're wanting. And so I'm not here to divide us. I think you're both right. What we have to do, and my chair that I sit in 
have to look at this stuff. And we got to make a call on various issues between two bad options. And so what I'm doing as your leader is I'm getting a lot of input. And I want to show them I am not a closed system here ruling from on high. And I want to name the constituencies, right? We've talked to the scientists and we've talked to the government and we've talked to the mayor and we've talked to other churches and we've talked to you and the congregation of what you're experiencing and all of this. And we've really done our best to figure out, you know, where's everybody? And the decision we've made is really not going to make everybody happy. And I understand that, but we had to make one. All I can tell you is I make it humbly, I make it fearfully, I make it prayerfully, but I don't make it in isolation. And I've done my best to take the best of everything we've got. And right now, this is what we're deciding. And we also, I want to tell you this, in today's world, there's so many unknowns that we're going to fail fast, meaning we're going to make some decisions. And sometimes we're going to get immediate data that tells us we need to adjust (laughs) And that's kind of what it might look like here for a while. So what I need us to do is continue to get close to each other in dialogue and listen to each other. And hopefully the best ideas will emerge, but we can't do that if we're attacking each other. I'd say something like that. Well, that's good. Because we're out of time, I have a couple wrap-up questions. And the first one is this, and this is sort of a, I'm an old guy pastor we have a lot of people listening to this who are going to have an amazing future if they don't self-destruct. Is there a behavior or a trait that you've seen that derails leaders' careers? If we weren't fallen and creating, you know, we're creating God's image, so we're really creative, and now we're fallen. So we're really creative about a lot of ways to screw up. I mean, there's no, it's kind of... <laughs> It's kind of, we're only limited by our depravity and <laughs> how depraved I guess we can be. Um, the derails, I would probably say, and there's a lot of different derivatives to this one, but I would basically say it has to do with being a closed system. It has to do with being a closed system. How many times have you heard this phrase? It's lonely at the top. Are you kidding me? It may be weighty, but God is at the top and he's not lonely. He's not by himself in a vacuum. And if you're telling me you are that insulated in thought, feedback, support, fueling, encouragement, correction, balance, then you have become an all-powerful entity if you're by yourself it is not lonely at the top you know pick a president and when they show he's got the the heavy not lonely the heavy burden of making that call we're going to get bin laden or we're going to bomb this or we're going to do that and they zoom in and they're showing it live He's sitting there watching the screen with whom the joint chiefs or the advisors. It is not lonely. And what they'll do is they will unknowingly insulate themselves to where ultimately they're insulated. That's a good word. What they'll do is compartmentalize the advisors in different segments where they're not really threaded together so they can move them around. And ultimately, they're all powerful. That's the worst, probably the worst scenario that derails people. If I can say say one more on the more honest version, okay? So that's kind of the that's sort of the you know the ultimate, somewhat malignant narcissistic version. Here's what happens to the the gooder people. <laughs> is they forget that they're not the creator, they're the creature. And here's what I mean by that. They are giving and serving and giving and serving and giving and serving. Great. Nothing wrong with that. 
the biblical model is not a self-denial model out of deprivation. It's not a deplete yourself, give out of an empty tank. It is a giving self-denial model out of an overflow of what God has put into you from the outside. We are not the creator. We are the creation. God's the only self-sustaining entity in the universe. The rest of us draw life from outside of ourselves. And the scriptures and all of ecclesiology, you know, all of anthropology, all of psychology, all of the theology of God proper, all of this will tell us that mankind and especially the whole doctrine of the New Testament of where we get the goods to keep going, we draw life into ourselves from the source of life, which is God, but the delivery system, meaning vertically and horizontally. Okay? And some people say, well, I, you know, only the Lord can meet my needs. That's not true. That's heresy. Only God can meet your God needs, and only people can meet your people needs. And God also meets a lot of your God needs through people. First Peter 4.10 says, when we love one another, we are administering the grace of God in its various forms. Paul said, God who comforts the depressed sent Titus to me. So you got a lot of really good people serving and giving, but like I told, I wrote a book called The Power of the Other on this. And in there's a story of this, this famous heart surgeon that blew up his life with affairs. Medical centers were, you know, named after him and are known for him. I mean, it's a big deal, but he's, he's sleeping with a bunch of nurses and finally he gets caught and the whole career blows up. Well, he, he's a Christian flies out to see me and said, I want you to evaluate my plan. And I said, well, give me your plan. He said, well, you know, I had to meet my wife's needs. And so every morning we're going to go on a walk. And every morning I'm going to get up and read a devotional book. And every day I'm going to, and it was a bunch of disciplines, right? And so I hear his plan. And he said, what do you think? I said, I'm, I'm really getting depressed. And he said, why? I said, because you're headed for another heart attack. That's the heart surgery. He said, what are you talking about? I said, let me tell you something about the human heart. He goes, oh, okay. <laughs> it's kind of a it's kind of renowned. I said, aren't there like a couple of pipes coming in and then a couple of pipes going out? He says, yeah, vaguely, sort of. I said, everything you just mentioned is output. Hmm. You're going to have another heart attack. In other words, you're going to have another affair because you're looking for something to fill you up. And until you get in a scenario where you are needy and vulnerable and weak and broken and grieving and all the stuff that God says is weakness that are blessed because you can only be filled when you're hungry and thirsty, then you're not going to have anything to pump out to all the ways you've been given. So leaders have got to come out of being a closed system and ask, who's encouraging you? Who's feeding you? Who's nurturing you? Who's encouraging you? The Bible says encourage one another. That means to put courage into you from the outside, to help the weak, First Thessalonians 5, to heal the brokenhearted, all of these things. And I talk to pastors and I say, where do you have where you can go be 100% transparent, nobody's a stakeholder you're talking to. That relationship only exists to heal and to help you. And they go, I don't have anywhere like that. That's a problem. Absolutely. And you know what? If I can say say one more thing, right? It bugs me because the church with its executives, which are the pastors, right? It's army, it's workers. Yep. How many churches have a budget for the care, feeding, well-being, and healing of the senior pastor or other pastoral staff? I go into, in the, into the business world. I've got one client company spends $100 million a year on individual coaching for their senior leaders. 
this, this is a business. What army doesn't have medics for their soldiers? The church. Where is it in the budget, elders? Come on, stop being asleep at the switch. Feed your pastors. Hey, by the way, for all of our pastors listening to this, if somebody hands us a check for $100 million today, we will do the exact same thing. The, uh, there you, go. You, you can get some really good coaching for $100 million bucks for one guy. <laughs> <laughs> minute it comes in, you'll be my first call. <laughs> there, there's a church in Southern California, a big one, very successful one, very successful, fruitful over many, many years. I don't think they'd mind me saying the name Mariners, if you know Mariners. Mariners, I don't know if they still do. I, I know they did. You know, Kenton, Kenton was a pastor there for three decades or more. Great run. That whole time, you know what they had? They had a, a committee that reported to the Board of Elders, and the committee on this committee was an HR director from a big company, a two former senior pastors, retired senior pastors of big churches, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, um, some other kind of human development type, and a CEO coach. That's the committee. The committee's mission statement, that they report to the Board of Elders, their mission statement over all those years was the care, health, development, and well-being of the senior pastor. That was their job. That's brilliant. You know, everybody's talking about the mental health crisis in America. And for a couple of years, I've been worrying about, um, we're trying, how can we help churches address the mental health crisis? And first of all, get mental health out of the rubber room. What are we talking about? People that are anxious or depressed or having struggles, it's kind of everybody. But it's increasing. And so we've developed a program, I've developed a program called Churches That Heal. And if you go to churchesthatheal.com, and it's a plug-and-play program for individual churches to be able to enter into the reality of your community and people that are hurting and helping people that are hurting. And it starts with the pastoral staff. So there's a pastoral retreat that I filmed with a real pastoral staff. You can take your team through or the staff through. There's a citywide big-screen event. Or you can do it in a Saturday morning or one off, but it's for the big screen. It's a half-day event about what does the gospel have to do with emotional problems? How do we get well from these things? And then the third piece is for individuals in small groups that take them through a process of healing in all these ways. It's called Churches That Heal. And there's also um, probably 50 or 100 small five to seven minute training videos included for pastors and staff about what do you do with a depressed person? What do you do with an addicted person, et cetera, et cetera. So if you go to churches at heal, you can find out about that. Fantastic. You've written a lot of books for folks that are going, I haven't read many of them yet. They're a leader. What two would you recommend they start with? If they're a leader, they're leading something. They're leading something. Um, if I got to limit it to the leader part of it, um, I'm going to say necessary endings is one that leaders find. Um, there's a lot of kind of pain relief in there. Yep. Necessary endings. The second one is integrity. It's the first leadership book I wrote. Integrity, you know, we think of it as you don't lie, cheat, or steal. It's a moral construct. It's not a moral construct. Morality is part of it. Integrity means to be integrated or whole. And so it's about what a whole leader looks like in being able to show up in all the different ways that leadership requires. And then the third one, I would say, gets pretty specific, is boundaries for leaders. I'd say those three. Fantastic. Uh, my last question is this. What's the question you wish people would ask you? What's the question I wish people would ask? Um, who are the people? I know what I, my I, I want my daughters to ask me. I know what I want. <laughs> like, who are we talking about? <laughs> hey, oh, in that case, let me frame it a little bit. I'll take it out of the leader, out of the leader realm. 
and into the everybody, sort of like right now, everybody that's a Christian that is low level discouraged? Um, I have to put it into a question. This is sort of like Jeopardy. I'm thinking the answer and now I got to come up with a question. I, I guess the question you're proposing is how do I get undiscouraged, right? Sure. I would remind them that we are in a really, really, really long movie here, guys. Okay? I want you to think Netflix. Okay? That's easy for everybody right now. You're watching a Netflix movie? Hit pause. Hit pause. What comes up? A lot of different scenes. All right? If you're watching a Jack Bauer, you know, you're watching 24 or you're watching Jason Bourne or 007 or you're watching a romantic comedy, in one of those scenes, it looks really dark. Romantic comedy. She just looked at his phone and he's got a text from the old girlfriend. It's all gone to hell. She's packing. She's getting in the cab. She's going down you know, Fifth Avenue, he's wondering where she's gone. She's bought a ticket back to St. Louis. It's all gone downhill. Or 007 is getting tortured. Yes, that's true. But it's one scene. Okay? This is a long movie. The most resilient people in the world realize at any given moment, this is not personal. Don't personalize it. You're a loser. Start to interpret everything negatively about yourself. It's not pervasive. It's not everything. It's certain parts of life, right? But it's not permanent either. Personal, pervasive, and permanent. And you've got to make sure that you realize if you're a believer, that God has, okay, we stand on stages in skinny jeans and play guitars every week and try to sell a message. And what's the message we sell? The message we sell is a story about being slaves in Egypt and plagues and being attacked and getting thrown in a well by your brothers and being in prison for 14 years and getting thrown into a lion's den and trying to make it, talk about hanging out with your family for a long weekend. Well, you have to go on an ark for however long, plus all the animals crapping everywhere. I mean, this is a book, a long story about a lot of trauma that goes on in this life. But it's also a story that you are not alone in this trauma and that the writer of the movie has already written the last scene and we know where it ends. Our job that we get to do now in this scene is you get to write kind of how you're going to play out the scene. And are we going to respond by grasping the hand of the person next to us and encouraging one another with these words, he says, and really encouraging one another and encouraging one another and being encouraged by his word. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. And one of the most important things we can do is put this into a long narrative that we are in a moment it's not going to last forever. We don't know what's coming, but we do know what we need to do, and that is we need to become one and love each other, and we need to stay very connected to the one who loves us. And if that's kind of, if we just do the just that one thing, then we're going to make it. Boy, that's good. Dr. Henry Cloud, thank you so much for this gift of time and wisdom. I was with, I, I do these gatherings, um, it's a leadership roundtable. We take about 20 pastors away for 36 hours 
And I was cool. in a golf cart at one of those. With I was going to say, I, I hope there's, a, I hope there's a golf course involved in this somewhere. Oh, hey, if, you know, these things should be rewards, not punishments, for being in leadership. And the and so a lot of it's free time, which is when most of the best connecting stuff happens. And I'm in a golf cart with this guy who comes to almost everyone we do, and we're playing golf, just talking and goofing around. I, I said, I said, so you keep coming back to these things? Why? And he had a great line. He looked at me and said, I'm better just because I'm here. Uh, he said, I'm better because we're playing golf. I'm better because I'm feeling supported. I'm better because I'm getting wiser. Uh, Dr. Cloud, I, I'd tell you personally, and for everybody that listens to this, we are better because you were here. I just want to say thank you. What a great gift of time. So, And, and, and I want to say one more resource they might look at yeah. is go, go to boundaries.me. Super. Boundaries.me, and it's a it's a portal that goes into a library of about 70 little mini courses that I have in in a lot of more on the personal side of issues, people struggling with stuff. Anyway, I check out that as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. And for more about Ray Johnston or the Global Thrive Conferences, or if you have any questions or comments, go to thriveconference.org. And we'll see you next time for the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast. Podcast.